Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. Our podcast features senior leaders in the military and in industry, and today's guest fits both of those categories. Major General Charles Duff Sullivan served in the Royal Canadian Air Force as a fighter pilot. He accumulated over 3,500 hours flying jet aircraft, 1,600 hours of which were flown in the CF-18 Hornet. In his military career, General Sullivan flew operational missions in the Persian Gulf, in Europe, including Bosnia, Croatia, and Kosovo, and in Canada's high Arctic and the North Atlantic. Today, Duff Sullivan is Boeing's country leader in Canada, where he provides leadership to Boeing's interests across the country. Speaking with the general is an honor for so many reasons. You'll hear his first-hand accounts of flying during the Cold War and his service both on the ground and in the air during NATO campaigns in Europe. The general puts a very personal perspective to his accounts, and in doing so, he allows us the opportunity to understand what he experienced in combat and how those experiences affect him today. The reflections he shares are detailed and they pay respect to the men and women he served with. The general also takes time to share his philosophy on leadership and teamwork, which he developed through military service and continues to carry on in his professional career as Boeing's country leader in Canada. We are publishing this episode to coincide with Remembrance Day and Veterans Day 2022. You'll hear how the General's accounts of service evoke emotion, which is why I think he is a perfect guest to help us commemorate this solemn day of remembrance. We would like to take this moment to acknowledge all of those that have served in uniform, and particularly those that have paid the ultimate sacrifice for freedom. We will never forget. This interview was done in October and is a two-part series. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic is a highly diversified company and is a leading provider of live, virtual, constructive, and game-based training solutions for allied forces. Cubic's training solutions include SPEAR, the next generation of multi-domain training, which is helping operators spend more time reviewing why things happened instead of just what happened. We are thankful that Cubic supports our efforts of sharing stories from senior warfighters and leaders from around the world. In doing so, we are preserving history through first-hand accounts, just like you will hear today. So we are proud to have Cubic as a teammate to go bold. To learn more about Cubic and their amazing capabilities, please visit cubic.com. Now, let's roll the music. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today I'm very happy to have as a guest, Charles Duff Sullivan, who is a retired Major General with the Royal Canadian Air Force. He was a CF-18 pilot and his history is fantastic. There's so much that I'm looking forward to speaking with Duff about. 
Today, Duff has the position of managing director of Boeing Canada, and that is essentially the country lead. So Mr. Sullivan has the portfolio to lead all of Boeing pursuits in Canada, which offers a whole nother insight to his career. But for purposes of this discussion, we'll start with, uh, with your career in the military, because with all of my guests, I like to ask, what made you join the military and why did you pick the branch that you did? Well, um, first of all, uh, thanks very much, uh, Jody, for the invitation to join you on your podcast. I'm I'm very pleased to uh, you know to sit with you uh, and uh, talk about a, a whole bunch of different topics. I think that we've identified, but I think your first question is um, you know somewhat appropriate. Uh, I, I I get asked that quite often when when people learn that I you know was a fighter pilot and and did a number of other things. They said like so like why? How did you get into this? And it was quite, uh, it's quite straightforward, really. Um, uh, I was, uh, when I was going to college, I was taking civil engineering. And uh, for a summer job, I was a surveyor up in Northern Ontario, a land surveyor. And um, we were being flown in and out of the, uh, out of the bush and out of the woods uh, by a helicopter pilot uh, on occasion. And I got talking with him and he was a former uh, uh, military pilot. And uh, it was actually, uh, you know, him that suggested, he said, you know, Duffy said, uh, he said, you, you should look into, uh, you know, the, the Air Force and becoming a pilot. And I said, well, I said, sure. But I said, I, I've never flown. Uh, I don't know anything about being a pilot or about flying. And he goes, oh, he said, that's not important. He said, uh, you know, you just seem to be a, like the type of guy that might enjoy that type of thing. So I graduated from college. I worked for a year. And then uh, one day I just walked into the uh, recruiting center here in Ottawa on Laurier uh, Street and uh, I just asked the question, I said, uh, I'd like to see about, you know, how I would go about becoming a pilot in the Air Force. I won't tell you the rest of the conversation because it wasn't all that um, uh, encouraging because, uh, you know, they basically indicated that, uh, you know, it's a pretty tough profession to get into and so on and so forth. You know, I didn't look back and uh, one thing led to another and uh, I joined the Air Force and got my wings and then started flying. So that, that's how it all started. You know what, Duff? I'm not sure if that recruiting officer should have got his pay. <laughs> well, no, he was trying to recruit me into other different things. He, he ah, wanted me okay. to go into the Navy. He wanted me to be a combat engineer because of my education. But he said, you know what? He said, um, you know, it's pretty tough going through the pilot training program. And I said, that's fine. I, I said, I, I'll give it a try. And if I'm not successful, I'll, I'll consider other things. But um, that, that's how I got started. Good for you. Good for you. Well, you know, as your career has shown, you know, you have accumulated more than 3,500 hours flying jet aircraft and 1,600 of them were in the CF-18. So that sounds like a pretty awesome career to me. Um, you got to tell me about flying the CF-18 because, and was that the first jet? Because depending on when you joined, uh, Canada had, you know, the CF-5, but yeah, tell me about your fighter career. Well, I, as soon as I received my wings, uh, I stayed in Moose Jaw as a jet instructor on the Tudor. Okay. And I did a, a number of different uh, jobs and positions there. I, I mean, one of my, the most exciting things I did while in Moose Jaw flying the Tudor is I was what they called an airworthiness test pilot. So whenever there was major uh, work done on an aircraft, whether it was an engine change or you know flight controls or things like that, uh, the, the, each aircraft had to be taken up on a test flight to make sure that it was airworthy. I did that for the uh, for all our school jets, but I also did it for the Snowbirds as well. That whenever a, a Snowbird aircraft, you know, required heavy maintenance and things, I would test fly their aircraft for them and make sure they were airworthiness and safe to fly. Uh, I did that for four years, and I always had my heart set on flying fighters. 
1984, I guess it was, I was told that I was going to be selected for the fighter program. I went up to Cold Lake uh, in, uh, at the end of 84, uh, started flying the F-5, uh, flew the F-5 for uh, about uh, eight months. Okay. And then went straight on to the F-18. And I was course four on the F-18, uh, the, you know, the fourth cadre to fly it. And um, as soon as we finished the F-18 course in Cold Lake, the whole squadron transferred over to Baden-Soligan. And I got to fly uh, an F-18 from Cold Lake all the way over to Baden, Baden-Soligan, uh, air refueling the whole way. So that was uh, an amazing start to my fighter pilot career was uh, those first early months. Oh, it sounds it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's awesome because I find it really interesting that Canada operated the CF-5, um, you know, such a small fighter and for such a large country kind of, you know, I don't know what kind of legs the CF-5 had, but, uh, but I'd love just to get your sense of what it was like to fly that one and then hop into the CF-18, which was cutting edge brand new at that time. Well, I absolutely love the F-5, uh, I, I have to confess, because, you know, I did fly the Tudor, and the Tudor was a, a beautiful jet aircraft to fly. Yeah. But I got in the F-5, and all of a sudden now we're flying an aircraft with two engines and with afterburners and a drag chute on landing. But the most interesting thing, Jody, is that we had to learn how to air refuel on the F-5. Right. But the, uh, the dual aircraft, like we would sit in the front, the instructor was in the back, we would take off and, and chase after the tanker aircraft, the big 707 with the hoses and the, and the, uh, and the baskets out the back. But the, uh, the dual did not have a, a probe that we could air refuel. We would just go and fly formation on the probe and droger on the basket. Okay. And then when the, when the instructor felt we were steady enough and looked like we were going to be okay, we would go and land. We would get out of the duel and we would each hop into a single, which had the, uh, the the probes, and we would take off together in formation. We would go and catch up with the tanker, and the very first poke that we did with the probe inside the basket was on a solo trip with our instructor flying formation on us, watching us do it. So uh, that was an, an exciting, very memorable uh, uh, you know trip that I did in in the the F5. But I absolutely love the aircraft doing the, the low-level navigation uh, in the Cold Lake Air Weapons Range and, and the, the air, air combat, the, the BFM and ACM, as we call it, basic fighter maneuvers uh, and then air combat maneuvers. And then, of course, you finish off the course in doing that air refueling uh, trainings. And then from there, I mean, you leave the F-5 course and then you hop directly onto the, the F-18. Well, the step going from the, the Tudor to the F-5 well, think of that, uh, the next step from the F-5 onto the F-18 as being something relatively uh, similar as far as, you know, physically flying the aircraft. But of course, the F-18 had all these other systems on board now. It had a radar, it had the EW kit that we used to manage, and then it had all the navigation uh, as well, where the F-5 was a, a more basic uh, uh, platform without any of the fancy uh, things that we had in the, in the F-18. Right. Obviously, hopping into the F-18, you've got all these, you know, capabilities and so much more information presented to you versus what your experience was in the F-5. But um, did you miss flying the F-5 for any reason? Or were you like, hey, you know, the F-18 is where it's at. I'm loving this. Like, was there any aspect of the F-5 that you missed, even knowing that you're an F-18 pilot? Well, yeah, perhaps uh, I think, um, you know, we all enjoyed every, you know, jet aircraft that we flew. You know, I, I missed the Tudor and right. then I missed yeah. the F-5. But, you know, whenever you go on to your next aircraft, 
you're you're totally focused on that aircraft, like learning how to to fly it the best you can. Of and course. that is like from a you know physically like takeoff and landing, and then you, you have to be able to handle all all the emergencies, and then you know you get into the the more advanced maneuvers of the aircraft. But you'll always remember the other aircraft you flew because those other aircraft were the stepping stones that led you to you know the aircraft that you are flying at that time. Right. And so you carry things with you, you carry things forward, and you have all those lessons you learn, whether it be as a student uh, going through basic flying training all the way up to you're now flying the F-18, which, you know, you got to think, uh, you know, how, how long ago was that, you know, 30 years ago or, or perhaps a little bit more, that uh, the aircraft was such an incredibly magical airplane uh, back, well, it still is uh, from my perspective, but back like 30 years ago, it was just incredible to have this modern technology that we are now learning. And we were learning it for the first time. Like there weren't a lot of folks ahead of us we, right. were, we were the first group to learn it and then to take it over to Europe during the Cold War and get ready to, uh, to fly missions during a Cold War scenario was when all that instruction and all that technology finally came together. And then we, we, re we truly realized how, how special, how incredibly capable that airplane really was. And most importantly, the European Air Forces over there, whether it be the, the U.S. Air Force and then, you know, the, the, the U.K. and the Dutch and the Belgi Belgians and that, they realized how capable the F-18 was. And so that's what it was all about, is that we arrived in Europe, but we got there by flying all these other aircraft that, that brought us along that path, leading to the F-18 and then leading to flying the F-18 during the Cold War, um, you know, back in the uh, back in the 1980s. So you have to tell me about that, Duff. Uh, what was it like flying in Germany? And it, it, you're absolutely right. In, in the 80s, it was the Cold War. So very serious business. Not to say that being a fighter pilot isn't serious business anytime, anywhere, but um, but you're right on the doorstep there. Well, we were. And, um, you know, uh, I, I still reflect quite often about, you know, that feeling we had when we, uh, when, when, when I landed in Baden Soligen, it was the, the first time I was there, obviously, when I landed there uh, in, in an F 18. And then, um, you know, within days, we started our combat ready training. And our combat ready training was about four to six months, um, you know, it, depending on the weather and things like that. Mm -hmm. But when we were declared combat ready, we knew that we were ready to fly missions. Uh, that we were, we had been trained to do in theater, and that was we were ready to go to war in two hours. That uh, all our all, all our training had prepared us to uh, to go, and and we were in the ground attack mode back then, air to ground. Mm -hmm. That we were ready to fly uh, uh, fly forward, as we say, and strike ground targets um, when the situation demanded, and that would have been that there would have been uh, the escalation of what we call TTW, time of tension and war that things had escalated to the point when NATO would be required to make a response against the Soviet Union at that time. So um, that was a, an awesome experience. And, uh, you know, of course, we used to do a lot of our, our Cold War flying training in Germany, like in West Germany, mm -hmm. but we used to fly right up to the border. And, uh, and we even knew uh, back in those days where our targets were going to be if, in fact, things escalated and that we had to fly forward. And, and carry out our, our strike missions. Right. And this Duff is before the age of precision weapons. So it was, yeah. 
what was what was that like in terms of you mentioned that you know your your focus was the air to ground role, but yep. this the CF eighteen is very much a multi role fighter. And so, did you have a penchant for one or the other? Obviously, you're focused on air to ground there. Well, our primary role, I think, seventy percent. We used to use the seventy thirty type uh, balance, but seventy uh, percent of our effort went into ground attack, okay. and then thirty percent was uh, spent on you know developing our air to air fighting skills. Right. And, um, you know, the, the air to ground portion was, um, you know, very challenging back in those days because we were doing uh, ultra low level flying. Um, I, I mean, it, it's rather interesting. A, a lot of folks today ask me about uh, Top Gun Maverick. Right. And, uh, and I said, yeah, I said, um, you know, of all the, the movies I've seen about flying and fighter pilots and things like that, that movie has come the closest to, uh, to capturing what type of flying we did back during the Cold War days in the F-18 in Europe, uh, like in Germany. And like we would depart the base and we would climb over the, the, the Black Forest to Schwarzwald and then we would descend. And then we would start making our way, you know, on, on special routings and things like that towards the target area. And we were flying low, like we were flying below 500 feet initially. And then we would go even lower than that. And we were always trying to stay below enemy radar so that they couldn't detect us. And so we were, we were doing what we call uh, like contour flying. Like you mm-hmm. know, we would climb over hills, we would fly up valleys. Mm-hmm. And then as we would get to the, the target area, well, it would be very similar to what um, the movie uh, Top Gun Maverick uh, portrayed, where we would pull up, we would roll inverted and then find our target and then uh, point down uh, using all the magic of the aircraft to acquire the target. And then to your point, Jody, is that the weapons we were employing were, were, were not precision weapons, that we had to go and put our cross, our, our, our pipper, on the target to press the pickle button, and then the weapon would come off the aircraft and then do a free fall down onto the target area, while we would then try and escape below the, the enemy radar at low level. So that was typically uh, a standard mission profile that we used to fly. And we used to deliver either 500 pound bombs. We used to do CRV-7 rockets. And then right. we had other weapons that we would employ depending on the tactical situation on the ground. But it was it was all uh, eyeball uh, on the target, then put the pipper on the target, overfly the target, and then drop your weapons while trying to stay uh, evade and, and avoid uh, enemy radar systems and weapon systems. I could imagine just what that's like, Duff, like high performance and and really kind of getting down in the weeds and trying to evade and, and stay as covert as you can. Um, it would have been amazing, amazing flying. Uh, just for a point of interest, what was it like living in Germany at that time? Oh, it was fantastic. Um, you know, it was uh, almost surreal, to be quite honest. You know, I, the Canadians were uh, very, very highly regarded over there, both you know, from an Air Force uh, military perspective, like other militaries, but also uh, by um, our, our local um, uh, German neighbors. And, um, you know, Canadians typically lived in the local communities and villages and towns. Nice. Um, you know, we did have a, a military uh, housing area on the base, mm-hmm. and quite a few families lived there. But I would say the majority of the families lived in the local community. And because of that, we, we had wonderful friendships, um, you know, great, uh, great relationships with, uh, with our neighbors and with the different um, stores and, uh, and, uh, and folks that, that also lived in the community. So it, w- it was very, very nice. And again, very highly regarded. And uh, it was a real special time in my life and during my career 
And um, yeah, it was just wonderful being a, a Canadian over in Europe during those days. And, and I think the German people, you know, our, our German uh, neighbors understood that we were there for a very specific purpose, and that was to join with them to defend our NATO countries against the Soviet Union uh, uh, back in those days. Well, it's amazing how, you know, um, the present day, we're looking at similar scenarios from a NATO perspective. You know, Russia has invaded a sovereign country. And yeah. so I suspect there's a lot of people on the ground there in NATO, in European bases, let alone elsewhere around the world that are probably looking at the problem set that you guys were looking at when you were there. Yeah, there's there's no doubt in my mind. And, uh, you know, if I may, uh, Jody, um, just to kind of maybe stray off our topic uh, a sure. bit, um, in 2017, I joined a, uh, a parliamentary delegation being led by um, Senator uh, Raynell Andrichuk and the, the Honorable uh, David Pratt. Okay. Uh, they both asked me to join their group, and we went over to Kiev, Ukraine. And so that was just five and a half years ago. And we went there to mentor the new parliament, the new parliamentarians, about how parliament now was going to exercise civilian authority and control over their police forces, their security forces, and their military forces. And so I have to say they were giddy with excitement about that their country had now arrived uh, at that point where they had a democracy, they had a parliamentary system in place, and now they were going to—they were becoming accustomed to setting up parliamentary committees mm -hmm. and how those committees were going to exercise authority and control over various elements of their federal government system. And because I was there as a, a former air component commander for NATO and then the director of operations for NORAD, they were asking me, of course, a lot of questions about that. And I was trying to mentor them about how we could help them, you know, put something similar in place capability-wise over in Ukraine. And they kept on asking me about becoming a NATO member. Hmm. And I would say, of course, I said, uh, there, there will be a time when uh, Ukraine will be ready to become a, a member of NATO. And they were always saying, when, how long will it take? I said, you're on the right path. Let's just continue on that path and, and see if we can make it happen as soon as possible. And they were always impressing upon me how important it was for them to move quickly because they needed to join NATO without delay. And I said, it will happen. They already had liaison officers in NORAD headquarters in, in Mons and in Brussels that we already had our forces over there in Ukraine helping them train. And I said, so you're, you're heading in the right direction. You're on the right path and we're going to help you join NATO and the EU. And little did we know that only the Ukrainians understood that time was of the essence and they needed to join NATO without delay. And if I would have known back then what, what we know today, I probably would have, uh, I, I would have advocated much more vigorously on their behalf that we needed to make that happen as soon as possible, not a decade, not five to eight years, not, not uh, five, you know, three to five years. We need to make it happen within months, if not maybe a year or two. But um, it was going to take a little bit longer than all of us had hoped for. And I think we wish that um, we could have done more to, to speed along that process to bring Ukraine into NATO. Because had we been able to do that, we would not be in the situation we're in right now. I agree. I agree. I think it's unfortunate and it is very sad what's happening there. You know, all the innocent lives that are being lost for no reason. And quite candidly, you know, there's a lot of Russian soldiers that are probably scratching their heads going, why are we here too? You know, 
Uh, well, not which, to mention all the Russian people. Exactly. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the Russian nation, the Russian culture, the Russian military, the Russian space program, you know, everything the Russians do is, is spectacular. They've, they've accomplished so much, just like the rest of, uh, you know, uh, our nations. Right. And then all of a sudden, uh, we have a throwback situation to something that we thought would never, ever happen again. And that is, you know, a, uh, an unhinged, unstable dictator has taken the whole country into a, a war situation yep. and they're all it, the russians uh, and and the russian military they're all scratching their heads saying how did we let this happen yeah and so now they're, they're trying to figure out how can we make this end you know how can we stop this how can we how can we get out of this situation and well, uh it's becoming more desperate as the days and weeks go on I agree. That, um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think I, everyone is sitting on the edge of their seat, waiting for something to something, dare I say, miraculous to, to happen, where we'll be able to put an end to this, um, to, to Putin's rampaging across Ukraine and everything that he's doing to the Ukrainian people. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I don't blame a lot of young Russian men for their exodus out of Russia. You know, they don't want to be conscripted and, and go into this. Um, Russia's annexed Crimea, and now they've done this illegal annexation of these four regions in eastern Ukraine, which is completely illegitimate. Um, yep. Hopefully there will be some positive resolution to this, but um, it's an absolute travesty what's happening there and, and heartbreaking. Um, so you flew in Europe, and then eventually you're rising through the ranks in the Royal Canadian Air Force, and obviously you became a commanding officer of a fighter squadron. And then you continued on. I'd love to know a little bit, Duff, about your leadership style. And both from a military perspective and also from an industry perspective, because you start out as a lieutenant. So you are led by people. I would love to know who are some of the role models that you think about. And then how did that influence you as a leader? Well, that is, um, you know, a, a topic and a question that I've uh, pondered uh, more times than I can remember. Um, you know, leadership is very important in, in everything we do, whether it be at home, whether it be uh, with our, within our community, um, certainly within, um, you know, some of the civilian jobs that I've done. But, uh, you know, the, the, the leadership in a military context is, is of critical importance because, uh, number one, it's what people expect of us. What, the, what, what does the Canadian public, what do Canadian citizens expect of their military leaders? And what do our own team members expect of us as leaders as well? And so um, when it comes to leadership, and I, I, I can give you a little bit more detail here in a second, but um, in, in my mind and in my heart, I see that leadership is all about relationships. And the relationships are my relationship to my boss, the person that I report to. It's my relationship to my co-workers or my co-commanders. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, it's the relationship I have with the other members of my team, the team that I lead, and it's the relationship I have with them. And the relationship is how I regard them and how they regard me and how we demonstrate how we feel about one another, whether it be through, you know, the, the amount of respect, the amount of, um, I, I don't use the word admiration, although I have over the years come across many individuals that I've admired, both those who I've worked for, those I've worked with, and then those who have been on my team. 
So that's the way I've always approached leadership. It's all about relationships and it's all about the team as well. And it's all about, you know, not just building the team, but it's all about nurturing the team and nurturing those relationships. So that's the core of what I think my, um, my, my leadership has been all about was just simply the relationships that I've had, you know, with those that, I've, um, that, have, that have surrounded me or those who I've been with, uh, both during very difficult situations, like highly tragic situations, to where we, we actually celebrate, you know, um, accomplishments and, and things like that. And then how, uh, how do we express ourselves to others? Um, you know, through those relationships. And so that, that's, that's what leadership is all about. Now you get into the actual elements of leadership. And I used to have a formula that I used to share okay. uh, with um, various groups that I had an ch- opportunity to speak with. And I always used to like to have these as interactive uh, conversations. But I used to talk about the, uh, the leadership skills. And leadership skills, uh, you know, we can learn to be a good communicator. We can learn to be a good writer or I should say effective, you know, what's what's good or bad, but you can, (laughs) you can learn effective communication skills. Sure. And so you you can even go to school and and, and learn these things in different institutions. And we learn it throughout our life about how to communicate properly. Um, The other part about leadership skills is how we um, look at difficult situations and how we can do what we call critical thinking. And so critical thinking begins in, in how we assess risks how we can you know, do, uh, mitigate risks and how we do that with respect to the team. And so I always come back to the team and the relationship I have with the team because even though as a military commander and under my leadership, I am required to honor the mission and accomplish the mission, I need to ensure that I look after my team. And so it's about a balance of about accomplishing the mission while looking after the team. And a lot of people say, well, you got to look after your team while you deliver the mission. Yeah, I, I, I you know, w- which one comes first? For me, they both sit side by side, but I have to look after the team uh, going forward. And once I have the, the priorities of the team set clearly in my own mind, then I can develop how I'm going to move forward in accomplishing the mission. Now, sometimes the mission can be very demanding on a team. And that's when a leadership style, whether you are a transactional leadership where you give orders and you expect people to follow it, mm-hmm. follow your orders, or whether you are a transformational leadership where you actually lead them in a motivational sort of way. And, and dare I say again that um, I believe that once you uh, experience the ultimate uh, level of leadership, it almost becomes a spiritual situation between you and your team and how you feel about the team and how they feel about you. And I used to have a couple of examples here that I used to use in some of my, uh, my talks. And I, I learned this from a very close friend and, and mentor of mine. His name is uh, Pierre Rochefort. And uh, when I was learning, uh, learning to be a fighter pilot, I learned from Pierre that when we would finish planning our mission, um, I would always go out to my fighter aircraft a little bit early so I could spread out my maps and show the ground crew the mission I was about to go flying on, you know, the target I was about to hit, you know, where the tanker was, where all our other assets were, our electronic warfare and so on. And I used to show them on the map how we were going to fly out, uh, meet with the tanker, uh, refuel, then go into the, 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 the target area, then come back and so on and so forth. And so, and it would only take about 10 minutes, but then I'd look at my watch and say, okay, guys, we've got to hurry. I've got to start engines pretty quick. 
This made the ground crew feel part of the mission. When I showed them about what we were going to do together, right? they got the aircraft ready. They uploaded the armament. They made sure that that aircraft was ready to accomplish the mission that I was about to fly it on. So they were part of it. And I remember uh, on a couple of occasions, and this is when we were flying in Aviano, um, on one special occasion, I, I did that and it was a long mission. It was about eight hours. So by the time I got back, the crew that had launched me, the one that I showed all the maps to, they were supposed to be off work, you know, back uh, maybe uh, having dinner or, or actually getting ready for bed. Mm. And a new crew would be there. And I would taxi the aircraft in and sure enough, the new crew was there and they would marshal me in. We would shut down the aircraft and, you know, we would, I would debrief about the serviceability of the aircraft and how the mission went. And one time I walked into the, um, the maintenance uh, facility and as I was signing the aircraft in, I looked back, uh, back in the corner and there was the crew that launched me. And I looked at my watch and I looked at the warrant officer and I said, what are those guys still doing here? Yeah. And, and they said, he, they said, sir, they were waiting for you to come back from your mission. They wanted to know how it went. Oh man. So all of a sudden I sat there and I went from being a little bit perturbed yeah. to being moved, like touched in a very, you know, in a very significant manner. And I said, okay, great. Thank you very much. Warren. Uh, uh, I'm glad you shared that with me. And I walked up to the guys and I said, guys, come on, let's, uh, let's go back to the, the mess tent and we'll have a cup of coffee and, you know, something to eat. And I want to show you, uh, you know, how the mission went. And, and, and they waited and they, they, they could have left. They could have gone, you know, wherever they could have gone to bed sure. you know, because they were probably going to have to get up in, in a few hours anyway. But, um, and I just kind of thought that, you know, you don't have many of these uh, moments in your in your uh, in your career, but when you establish that relationship, and it's all about relationships and how you come together as a team, common purpose, common goals, common objectives, and when everyone feels part of that goal and objective, that's when you work together as a team, and then it is amazing what comes from that. And what I experienced on this one occasion, and it, it happened more than once, by the way, where that team, they wanted to find out how the mission went and they wanted to, you know, basically wait for me to come back. And so that was uh, a little bit of the leadership. Uh, I'll just finish off, Jody, if I may, because, you know, you can talk about the leadership skills. You can talk about leadership qualities and leadership qualities. I used to boil down to uh, honor, integrity and courage. And you can do a little bit of a deep dive into each one of those. Sure. But integrity, I think, speaks for itself. Uh, it's like the integrity of an embankment holding up a bridge. That if you were to see this, uh, the integrity of that embankment, and it's all falling apart, and it doesn't look very strong, then you would question the, the integrity of the whole bridge. Uh, you would look at the honor. And I remember, do you remember that saying about honor is easier maintained than regained? Yes. That you always want to be seen as an honorable, fair, and honest person. Right. And once you lose that, it, it's difficult to get it back. Yeah. And then, of course, there's always the courage aspect. And courage isn't about charging off into danger. You know, courage is always uh, always being able to do the right thing in the face of adversity or when when everyone else may not be willing to accept the right thing from you. So that's all about courage as well. And then finally, the last two elements, and we, we probably won't have time to, to hit that, you know, to go through all of this in, in a lot of detail. But the very last part of my leadership is that relationship that I've already spoken about with the team. 
but it's all about commitment. What are you willing to commit to as being a member of the team, but as also as the leader of the team? What am I willing to commit to? What am I willing to do for the mission and for the team? And then the last one is sacrifice. What would I do for the team? What would I be willing to do to myself in order to, to make sure the team is as good as it can be and, and, every, and each member of the team? And that's how I used to end off uh, my leadership formula was it's all about the commitment. And we've seen leaders that did not have commitment to the team. And right. then it's the sacrifice. And then a lot of people say that he has demonstrated sacrifice. Uh, they will say, so he is a leader who has been tested because we have many leaders who've never been tested. Right. So you, you never really know. But being a leader who has been tested and you have sacrificed and you've demonstrated commitment, that's what leadership is all about. And it's kind of like the, the, the highest tier of leadership after you do the, the skills, the qualities, the relationships, the team building, and then the commitment, and then the sacrifice. And then, of course, if you've been tested and you, you, you made it through that test, you, you were, I, I wouldn't say, I, I, I don't like to use the word successful, but you carried the team through that very difficult time. You have been tested as a leader. Then that's the ultimate aspect of leadership. I love it, Duff. And I thank you for sharing that example because I could hear how it touched you and it touches me to know that you experienced that and that there are people like that, that were on your team that were invested. And that's partly from you including them and making them feel part of that team. So yeah, BZ to you and, and that team, like super awesome. But you know, Jody, if I may, just uh, just to follow with one more really quick uh, little little anecdote here, Please. and that is, um, uh, I mean, I, I related this from a, from a you know uh, uh, an Air Force perspective, a fighter pilot perspective, right? But I heard a very similar story from my DS, my uh, directing staff, when I was in staff school, you okay. know, back in 1984. His name was Commander Tim McMillan. He was a former submarine commander, okay. and he shared with me back then that after his first cruise on a submarine, he was a skipper of his own submarine. Mm-hmm. They had been out at sea for four or six months, very, very difficult conditions, you know, just brutal. I think they made one or two port calls but then the rest uh-huh. of the time they were on maneuver, you know, below the surface. And right. when they, when they came, finally came back home, back to Halifax, as they cruised back, uh, back to the jetty, back to the pier, all the families were there to greet them. And all the sailors aboard the submarine were there in their, in their finest uniform. And it was just a wonderful homecoming. And then they tied up the submarine and then everyone took off. I mean, they had a few chores to do, but everyone took off to spend probably a week or two with their families on well-deserved leave. The skipper went home that night, but he had to come back to the sub the next day because he had all kinds of reports to write that had to be submitted within a certain amount of time. And he told me, he said, as he drove up, he looked at the submarine and he could see a bunch of other cars parked out on like near the jetty where they normally park. And when he went aboard, he went down below and, and the submarine's uh, company was all aboard. And he walks in and he says, what are you guys doing here? You're supposed to be home on leave. And then the, uh, the, the chief petty officer says, he says, Skipper, he said, we knew you were going to have to be here to finish off your work, to submit your reports. And if you're here, we're here with you. Wow. And when he when he said that, I knew that he, you know, had a team and he was the leader of that team and they wanted him and they respected him as the leader. So that was another good example that really elevates right to the highest levels of leadership. 
yeah, and yeah. Uh, and what it's all about, and that, that that's a naval perspective or a submarine perspective, and you've got the Air, Air Force perspective. Uh, beautiful examples, beautiful example stuff. Um, you mentioned about flying out of Aviano in your mm-hmm. example and doing an eight-hour mission. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I suspect that was the Kosovo campaign. It was, and um, I wasn't there during the, um, you know, the two months of, um, during the, uh, the bombing campaign itself. Okay. Um, the, uh, I think the bombing campaign ended after about two or two and a half, or yeah, maybe two and a half months. Mm-hmm. Um, I came in just a couple of weeks at, at, the, at the end of June of uh, 1999, I think it was. And we were transitioning from the, um, you know, the bombing campaign where we did pre-planned bombing missions mm-hmm. to where the, uh, the Canadian F-18 squadron there, which I took command of, uh, we provided air support to all the NATO troops that were in Bosnia. So we were there providing that close air support mission to the ground commanders and all the ground forces that were there, uh, still trying to resolve the uh, the, the desperate situation that was take, still taking place on the ground back in those days. If, if I've got my timeline right, that was your first time serving in combat. Well, um, yeah, I guess it all depends on your definition of combat. Um, you know, back in 1994, uh, I was flying F-18s in Bagotville, um, okay. you know, in the multi-role mission, air-to-air, air-to-ground. Sure. And I got a call from fighter group headquarters, and they said, we're looking for they called it the OC of the TACP, and that is the, the officer commanding a tactical air control party to deploy to uh, Bosnia with the Royal Canadian Dragoon Regiment. And uh, they wanted a major fighter pilot to fill this position, and the TACP was 16 forward air controllers, and I was a forward air controller at the time. Okay. Uh, forward air controllers, and then we had, um, you know, master corporals and sergeants that were specialists within each of our uh, JTAC group or, or, or FAC group. And so we had uh, four teams of four. So, so two officers, uh, four air controllers, and then normally a sergeant and a, uh, and a master corporal. And we would be assigned our own vehicle. And then we, were, we would be tasked by, I remember General Rose from Sarajevo, and we were traveling all over the, the Balkans back in those days from, uh, from Sarajevo, up to Tuzla, up to Bihatch, wherever there was a hotspot where um, the UNHCR and NATO troops were coming under fire, we would have to rush in and then call in air support to try and stop the situation that was taking place on the ground, or at least the Serbian forces targeting our friendly uh, NATO forces uh, back in those days. Well, actually, they weren't NATO, but they were UN, UN forces doing um, uh, protection of the UNHCR. United right. Nations uh, Commission of High Refugees or Refugees. Right. And so I, I would say that's probably, uh, you know, my first real exposure to um, combat operations where I was on the ground, um, you know, working with the Royal Canadian Dragoon Regiment. Um, they were all at their observation posts and uh, we, would, we would be sent in whenever there was a very dangerous situation evolving or, or taking place. And we would call in uh, the fighter aircraft, uh, close air support aircraft, to basically put a stop to the Serbian attack on, on our friendly forces. I'm sure it gave you an appreciation for the guys on the ground uh, being. Oh, without ground. a doubt. I mean, um, you know, operating there for seven months doing that job. I arrived in October of 94. I left in May of 95. Um, and, you know, that was in the time leading up to the fall of Srebrenica, a very tragic situation where uh, 
the Bosnian Serbs surrounded Srebrenica and then uh, they laid siege and then the, 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 the Dutch soldiers were forced to abandon their weapons and march out. And um, the end result of that was that over 10,000 Bosnian men and boys were, uh, were executed, uh, yeah. were massacred by the, uh, the Bosnian Serbs back then. So it was a very dangerous time. There was, um, you know, our, our, our camps were coming under fire on a regular basis. I can remember one time we were living uh, down in the bunkers for a number of days. And uh, if you did go up top, you could actually hear rounds hitting the side of the building. Uh, it wasn't unusual to be, uh, you know, to have uh, tanks firing nearby or mortar, uh, mortars going off and things like that. So uh, it, it was a, a very, um, a very interesting time. And, uh, you know, being there as a forward air controller where we could go in and uh, pre- try and resolve uh, escalating situations. And typically the way it would go is if, um, you know, our friendly forces were under fire, we would go to the scene and then we would call in fighter aircraft to do a demonstration of force. Mm-hmm. And then typically that would be enough that the Serb forces w- would immediately withdraw because um, if they didn't, they knew that we would target their position. Wow. Um, again, another tragic period of history in Europe. It was. And I can remember as we were going on our various assignments uh, all over um, Bosnia and even into Croatia, going by like we would pass one village and it was just a normal village. Everything was looking great. You know, the the market square was busy. And then five kilometers down the road, the entire village would be completely bombed out because that would have been a Muslim village that that had been uh, basically completely destroyed. And it wasn't unusual to go through some of these uh, small villages and towns. And you would pass a medical clinic and you would see all the bodies lined up in body bags uh, outside on the front lawn and in parks. All the parks had uh, graves and and bodies ready to be buried. So it was um, a very um, tragic, uh, unbelievably tragic situation to to see firsthand over there with all the loss of life and uh, the fighting that was going on almost continuously. You know, you are a professional service member, Air Force pilot. Um, how did seeing that affect you as a person? Did it leave a lasting effect? Uh, I, I would have to say yes, of course it did. Um, you know, you cannot help but be affected by um, certain experiences, and I, I certainly have. Um, you know, I, I've never been, you know, clinically diagnosed with PTSD, although I, I do know I have, uh, you know, difficult moments um, you know, during my life, uh, whether it be I wake up in the middle of the night for some unknown reason, I can't go to sleep and you start thinking about things. And, uh, and, and you know, so I, I would say that, um, you know, you, you end up developing uh, coping mechanisms to help you through those uh, rough periods of time. Um, I would say that the, the most difficult period of time of the year, uh, which is just coming up, because here we are now will be Remembrance Day. And I still have a very difficult time with that. But, um, you know, I think back of um, all the tragic events I've been part of, and, uh, you know, we, we haven't really talked about 9-11 and uh, what right. we were required to, to do in the wake of 9-11. In, um, I was the director of operations for the Canadian NORAD region. And, um, you know, what we had to do to transform NORAD from pre-9-11 to post-9-11. And now instead of the threat coming from outside the country, uh, the, the threat could come from within the country and, and how we were going to prepare for that. And then, of course, I think you'll remember that 
nine months after 9-11, we had the G8, G20 summit in Kananaskis. Right. And now we were uh, you know, trying to wrap our minds around how are we going to defend and protect the, the G8, G20 site in Kananaskis in this new environment, like in this new threat regime. And, but you know, that's, that's perhaps for another day, uh, Jody, but um, I have to say that um, you know, my experiences, and we haven't really talked about my experiences in Afghanistan, uh, Operation Medusa, which I was sent in to investigate in 2006, and then my, my 13 months there from 2008, 2009, and then 9-11, um, uh, they were perhaps um, you know, some of the most impacting uh, experiences that I've had uh, in my career, in my life, that um, I, I reflect on, you know, not daily, but um, several times a week, I often pause and think about, you know, um, the two interpreters I had, uh, well, one was a cultural advisor, one was an interpreter that I worked with in Afghanistan. Thankfully, they are now here in Canada, in, in Vancouver. But I think of their families, you know, their extended families that are still over there, and they're, they're trying to bring them to Canada as well. And they've been in contact with me and, and, and the type of guidance and uh, that I've offered to them to try and bring their families over. But, uh, you know, these are things you think about a lot. And um, because, uh, you know, they were part of my team as well. And I, I always uh, thought about, you know, how do I look after them? How do I, I keep them safe? And even though they're here in Canada, you know, what are they experiencing? What are they thinking about? You know, uh, how are they dealing with these tragic situations? Like when we saw um, the, the downfall of uh, the, the NATO mission in Afghanistan when the Taliban took over and they were at Kabul. I, I mean, I was there when we built Kabul International Airport and then we saw it handed over to the, uh, to the Taliban. I mean, I, it took me weeks, if not months, to properly process what was happening yeah. um, you know, over there after you know, so many lives had been lost and so many years have been, uh, ha- have been um, devoted and dedicated to try and make Afghanistan a, a, a better country. And then that all came to a, a, a tragic end. And then, of course, uh, you know, th- those are the things that, um, that, that, you're, that you're required to live with, you know, day in and day out, uh, you know, long after the events have, you know, you sometimes think have faded into the background. Mm-hmm. They never really do. They're always there. And um, it only takes something on television or you'll hear something on the radio or you'll read something and then it just brings everything back. And then you're right back into having to, you know, rely on those coping skills, you know, to help you through those difficult times. But um, I do that, you know, with my family. My family provides me lots of support, uh, especially my wife. Um, Yeah. It's, well, um, it's the type of thing that uh, you just try and uh, deal with it the best you can. And, uh, and I, I will say that my, my secret uh, to all of this is I try and approach the most difficult aspects in life in a very realistic sort of way, but also in a very philosophical sort of way that uh, I'm not by myself. Uh, I, I didn't do this alone. I went through a lot of these experiences or all these experiences with other people. And, um, you know, we, we all have these challenges that we, we must continue to, uh, to, to take on and to embrace. And, and I really mean that we have to embrace them and we, we allow them to shape us and to make, make us into better people, uh, you know, to, uh, into better, uh, you know, husbands and fathers and community leaders and, and neighbors and things like that. But, um, yeah, so that's, I guess that's a long-winded um, comment about, you know, how I've been uh, affected over 
in my 32 years in the military and uh, and all the the experiences I've uh, I've gathered along the way. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Duff, and and you know I hope that even having discussions like this kind of help in that sense because my feeling is that if people keep these experiences uh, perhaps maybe this is not the right word to use but bottled up or internalize them um you know i think if if you if you share these things the burden is less on you and and many shoulders can carry it and uh and share it with you i i hope that helps i i hope talking about these experiences help well, I think it does, Jody. And, um, you know, uh, it is therapeutic in a certain way. And uh, sometimes um, it is good. Uh, it, is, it is useful to wander into those areas that you've been avoiding for so long and then to talk about it and to try and put it into some type of perspective, you know, about, um, you know, philosophically speaking, that what's going on you know, you start, you know, we, we tend to think of ourselves as the center of our reality. Right. And then, but we have our family and then we have our friends right. and then we have our colleagues and then we have our neighbors yes. and then we have other people, just like you've mentioned. I, I belong to a couple of community groups and uh, it's amazing how, how much they reach out. You know, it's almost as if they can sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I you know, Duff, I, I think that, um, this is a wonderful spot to to pause this discussion because, as you mentioned, there are all those other experiences, and they are very significant parts of your career. And if you're okay with it, I would love to do a second part where we continue this chat and talk about 9-11 and talk about Afghanistan because I don't want to gloss over them. And I think it would yeah. be, and then also hear about what you're up to today. Sure. Well, uh, uh, Jody, I can promise you that um, I'll look forward to sharing more uh, with you. Um, you know, if you think your followers and listeners uh, to, to your podcast would be interested. And I'll just say I'll, I'll be waiting for your call. I can tell you with a resounding yes. Uh, <laughs> my listeners would be certainly interested, but I also am absolutely interested in hearing that. And, and I would be thrilled for the opportunity. Um, Thank you so much for your insight and your reflection stuff. Um, th this, this chat was one of the more, all, all of my guests have been absolutely wonderful. I have to say that, you know, this experience has been wonderful for so many reasons. And our discussion today is another reason why I am so blessed to have the opportunity and the honor to speak with somebody like yourself and to have you spend some time with me means a lot. So thank you. Well, so thank much. you, Jody. And I'm very pleased we were able to spend some time together today to talk about these, um, these, uh, these very important elements of uh, what I consider of my life. But, uh, you know, um, it's uh, hopefully somebody will, uh, some, some of my words will resonate with others and uh, they might find even some, take some comfort in uh, some of the things that I've gone through, but also be able to share it with, with others as well. And that, that's what it's all about. I think we want to share, um, you know, how we've been able to, you know, to get through certain things in our life. And, uh, but also, um, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll have a few things to share where we celebrated, um, you know, some, some other things uh, as well. So those will be more happier uh, type uh, conversations, I hope. I, I'm looking forward to all of it. Thank you again, Duff. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'm looking forward to our next chat.
that, my friends, was Charles Duff Sullivan, Major General, retired with the Royal Canadian Air Force, and uh, all around wonderful man. Um, thank you so much, Duff. Uh, I look forward to our next chat. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.